Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Hi, everybody. Today's episode is about ancient pandemics. I thought that was a good way to close out the 2021 year. And before we jump into the interview, I just want to say thank you to the listeners of the show. Many thousands of you have tuned in this past year. It's been a really successful year for the podcast. We've done more episodes than ever. And I just want to say thanks for giving me this opportunity, for tuning in, for telling your friends and family about the show. I really enjoy talking to these interesting people, and I'm really thankful that I get to share those conversations. Hopefully, it's something that's entertaining and informative for you as well. And I'm looking forward to what we're going to jump into next year. I do think I'm going to take a few weeks off here in December to recuperate, work on some other projects, but we'll hit the ground running with some more ancient subjects in 2022. If you do have a moment, I would ask that you consider leaving us a review. If you're a fan of the show, uh, leave us a review on your podcast app. It's really helpful so more people can find the podcast. And otherwise, like I said, thanks for listening, and I hope you have a good holidays. And now let's jump into today's episode with Lee Mordecai. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm here today with Lee Mordecai, who's a senior lecturer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has a PhD in history from Princeton University, and he is an expert on pre-modern disasters from pandemics to earthquakes. He's been featured in major media outlets like CNN and the Washington Post, and he's a co-host of the Infectious Historians podcast. So I thought we'd close out the year with some talk about pandemics and disasters and that kind of thing in history. So thanks again, uh, Lee, Professor Mordecai, for being with us. And um, I guess my first question for you is, how did you get into this specific expertise of historical disasters and what's it been like over the last couple of years um, with, uh, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and that becoming extremely relevant for the world? Yeah, thanks. It's, it's great to be on here, Patrick. It's a great question. I mean, I, I think my... Uh, so to speak, academic trajectory has uh, has been pretty random, really. I mean, I wrote my dissertation on a completely different topic, uh, social history and uh, 11th century Byzantine Empire, mm. uh, minorities, really, minority groups within the Byzantine Empire. But as a side project, working with my, my, working with my advisor, uh, I just came across this entire notion of environmental history and what environmental history is, why is it important? And I kind of grew into it. I started off with thinking about disasters, mostly earthquakes, some floodings, some other other disasters as well. And within the broader environmental history, disaster studies, broadly speaking, I kind of moved into disease history as another side project working with, with a friend, colleague, partner, or whatever, uh, Merle Eisenberg, who's a co-host with me in, in Infectious Historians. Cool, cool. So what has it been like? I mean, your background is in history, 
Uh, and it, it seems like once you start getting to all this pandemic stuff, it starts really incorporating the sciences and medicine and things. And so um, I noticed that you've had articles that you've written or co-written that have been published in scientific journals as well as history journals. What has that been like? Have you learned a lot about uh, kind of the science behind some of this stuff uh, in your in your research? I mean, my training has been a historian's training, which is to say that I've read a lot of books and a lot of texts about ancient stuff, much, much less so, I mean, practically nothing about science. So it has been a, a learning experience on multiple in multiple ways. I mean, both realizing how much science can offer us, how much science can help us, the limitations of science as well. And also how to talk to, collaborate with scientists, which is a completely different issue, a challenging issue, but I think that it's also one that has a lot of potential. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe we should jump into some talk about uh, pandemics. And, you know, this show we focused uh, mostly on the ancient world, um, obviously, uh, but we're starting to get into uh, I definitely want to get into the Middle Ages and things like that. So it's kind of broadly speaking, the ancient world, but there's no exact cutoff really for us. And so I guess starting out, I was curious. Um, uh, I know that you've looked at uh, historical pandemics. Um, is there any evidence that we had pandemics or disease outbreaks in like the classical world of ancient Rome and Greece? Or, or did that not start happening until later? Well, yes, there, there is. There's actually quite a few outbreaks, earlier outbreaks, uh, so, so in antiquity. I think the earliest one that we have good textual evidence for is the plague in Athens in the 5th century, mm. where Thucydides writes, uh, writes about this. Actually, a very popular piece of writing in Thucydides, which, has, which, which would be copied and, and copied by I think last time I counted, there were 11 other ancient authors who just copied, basically took, adapted Thucydides' account of this plague of Athens. Mm. We call it the plague of Athens. We don't actually know if it, it, it was not plague. I mean, there have been about 30 different diseases that the various uh, doctor, I mean, doctors, historians, other scholars who... who so doctors and historians and other scholars have suggested about 30 different um, diseases that this so, so-called plague of Athens may have been. Mm. And I think that has been uh, the first in a series of other epidemics as well. Uh, the, most, the best known ones are the so-called Antonine Plague and the mid-late second century and the Cyprianic Plague in the mid-third century. And then we get to the Justinianic plague in the sixth century, which is what most of my research has been about. Interesting. So I definitely want to talk about the Justinian plague in 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 a moment. But I guess what I'm I'm wondering about some of these ancient plagues and pandemic outbreaks were they you didn't have as much density and much smaller populations in some of these ancient cities. So what um, what role did that play? How did that make things? A little bit different than like what we might see today it's a great question and i probably should preface things by saying that we actually don't know nearly as much as we would like to know about these ancient pandemics right so we get some textual evidence people dying someplace from some disease most of the time most of the times we don't get the symptoms or maybe the symptoms 
kind of seem to fit maybe more than one disease that we, I mean, more than one modern disease or diseases in, in the way we understand them today. In other cases, we might get texts that just say uh, there was a disease in so-and-so in such such place, uh, people died, or just like this, these very laconic entries in like chronicles or the like. Uh, that being said, we do hear more about centers. So I think the cities and the plague of Athens is a good example. Athens during this time, during this plague, is right at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. So all the all the population of Attica, the area around Athens, has been brought into these walls, the long walls connecting Athens and Piraeus, its its port town city, and the Athenians and the Athenians, the Athenian citizens, broadly speaking, they're all sitting there and basically waiting while the Spartans are ravaging the countryside. Mm. And while they're there, they're they're also getting sick. So this is the plague of Athens. This is what one of the ideas, which I think is pretty convincing, is that the the higher density, this unusual density, was one of the things that facilitated the onset, the outbreak of the plague of Athens. The Antonine plague, for example, we hear about it in the context of Rome, another massive city, about let's say let's say according to some estimates at least about a million people at this point and the justinianic plague as well happens in, in the best evidence we have by far is in constantinople the largest city in the empire in the sixth century okay and there's no real way to definitively um identify which viruses or something might have been uh behind some of these plagues i remember um reading, I read a uh, scholarly kind of journal article about where some doctors tried to look at the historical evidence, I guess, to the extent there, there is much about how Alexander the Great died, what he died from, basically. And it was interesting because it was a collaboration, I think, between some historians and medical doctors. And I guess I'm curious what your... Um, what your perspective is on that. Is that something that you feel like is it's just too speculative or do you think, you know, um, how much stock do you put in these theories on, on which viruses were which as a historian? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's another good question. Um, so I would say a few things, first of all, yes, there have been different scholars again, who've tried to identify these diseases. Some of these identifications are more speculative than others. At the end of the day, I think it's hard to say conclusively, and this is part of the, the issue that I think we've been seeing in research, uh, that most of these more speculative doctors reading historical sources and trying to figure out what was going on there, most of these, or at least many of these, let's say, they, they don't, don't necessarily agree with each other. Now, there is a game changer, though, here, uh, essentially paleogenetic or ancient DNA studies. Mm. Uh, we've had ancient DNA work that is related to historical disease for about a quarter century or so. Okay. Uh, and I think one of the very interesting things that has been happening in this field over the past decade, really, from 2010, 2011, the, the earlier articles on this particular topic, is to try to identify these ancient diseases uh, using the, the ancient DNA of some of the pathogens that cause them. So for example, I think plague is a great example here. Uh, so both the Black Death, the medieval Black Death, and also the Justinianic Plague have both been shown 
to exist during uh, the, the 14th century and the 6th century, respectively. Mm. Uh, and I think this has been is considered now is sufficient evidence to agree, really, to, to put this in consensus, to put that the, the, both these diseases were really caused by plague, that is, by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, uh, which still exists today, plague exists today, and so on. So uh, we, we identify the same bacterium in human remains from burials, multiple mass burials in both those periods. Uh, so that's that's where some of the... that. That would be an example of where science can really help us and solve a question that, I mean, people speculated before this that the Justinianic plague and the Black Death were caused by plague, which was there was no conclusive evidence. And there were some very vocal minorities of people who said, you, you know, it may be plague, but it might also be all these other diseases. So yeah, it, it's, it's unclear. And then the geneticists came on and, and just found the proof, so to speak. So if we have so if we have human remains, um, there is a chance with these different cases that you can uh, discover um, the whatever remains of the viruses or something like that. Is that the idea? Okay. Yes. That broadly speaking, that is uh, the way this works. Is you dig up graves. Uh, archaeologists tend to do that. Right. And, and you find human remains. Most of the DNA in the human body dissolves, disintegrates, breaks down. So it's very difficult to find intact DNA. Mm. Uh, the best place to look for that are teeth. So what the geneticists or most geneticists would do is would take teeth, kind of cut them open and take the, the powdery remains of the uh, the dental pulp inside and just analyze that, right? So try to sequence or identify the DNA of whatever they're looking for, in this case, the Yersinia pestis bacterium within that DNA. If they're lucky, so they can declare that they found ancient DNA of Yersinia pestis in these remains. Now, that being said, I mean, I'm talking about it as if it's like a very simple thing, but no, it's actually pretty, very complicated. And the chances of finding intact DNA are very, very rare. Mm. Uh, so, so I think I read, I read a statistic at some point, I think last year, someone came out with this statistic that out of, I think 13,000 or so remains that were analyzed, they found a complete ancient DNA, complete genomes of only, I would say about 200 more or less uh, pathogens. So you need you need a really large sample to to go with, and in a case of like an individual, uh, and in the case of Alexander the Great, we don't even have his remains. But maybe yeah. another ancient individual, uh, you know, it would be extremely unlikely you'd be able to extract DNA even if you had remains to figure out on that level. But if you had a population that where you could look at and maybe find something. Um, well, I, I want to talk about the plague of Justinian. I know when I was looking through uh, kind of your bio and stuff, I, I saw that you had an expertise in that, and I had not heard of that. Um, and, I, and I'm curious um, uh, what the plague of Justinian was and, and, uh, and why it's something that is important for us to know about. Okay. So broadly speaking, uh, the, the, the Justinianic plague or the first plague pandemic they're mm. kind of synonymous, not exactly, but they're, they're kind of. 
it is a plague outbreak or a plague pandemic that happened in that began, or at least is first recorded in the Eastern Roman Empire, also called, also known as the Byzantine Empire, mm. in the mid sixth century. So we hear about the plague from let's say 541, more or less. Okay. We know, or at least the standard narrative today identifies the pandemic, broadly speaking, as beginning in the mid-6th century and continuing all the way until the mid-8th century. Now, this does not mean that places were affected by plague throughout that period. It seems to have been coming, it seems to have come and gone from different areas at different times, right? So, for example, in Constantinople, the capital of the empire, we hear about recurrences, let's say more or less every 15 or so years at the beginning of this pandemic. And some places, again, in, mostly in the Middle East, we hear about them a bit later on. So let's say the seventh and eighth centuries. Now we know there is evidence, now genetic evidence actually, of plague reaching all the way until all the way till England hmm. yeah, on one side. And we know there are sources that talk about diseases happening at the same time in the early seventh century in China, but those diseases are not identified. So they may or may not be plague. And that's actually a big a big problem in a lot of these identifications and trying to match or figure out what this disease is doing. So some places would tell us, uh, in, give us information about the symptoms, mostly buboes. Other texts might not be, might not, might, again, might just tell us that people died in this place in this year. And then it is on, I mean, what historians would have to do is to try and figure out, would this be plague? Would this not be plague? What happens if we take this and consider it as plague? What happens if we decide that it isn't plague? So this is the broad understanding of the Justinianic plague as it is today. So, and when you say plague is, I think of plague as like this broad kind of meaning of, of you know, kind of in the broadest definition. But when you say it, are you specifically talking about bubonic plague, like the Black Death plague? Is that a specific kind of term for that yeah so so uh, terminology can be confusing and and a lot of in a lot of these discussions uh, yes but though when i say okay so when i say the justinianic plague so yes i mean plague as uh, as like the black death or i mean bubonic plague is a type of plague there are also a couple of the a couple of other types pneumonic plague and septicemic plague those are much more rare so we probably don't have to talk about them too much but it, bubonic plague is the most common by far. So when I say Justinianic plague, I mean an outbreak of probably mostly bubonic plague happening in, or outbreaks of bubonic plague happening over those two centuries around the Mediterranean and maybe a bit east towards the Middle East. When I say the plague of Athens, however, I actually do not mean plague. That's confusing, I know, but that's these are just the terms that people have been using. So it's... it's they're just going to stick around for the time being at least. Okay. And so, um, uh, okay. That totally makes sense. And <laughs> the just the Justinian plague, this is the first iteration sort of of this bubonic plague that's widely spread. Is, is that right? And, and is, and how is it different? Or, I mean, in my mind, like I just have this very lay person idea of the worst thing ever was the black death kind of thing. Um, and was that true? I mean, was it like a new era of the of how bad this kind of thing could get? 
Okay, so so a lot of these questions are actually debated. Uh, I mean, right now, really. Uh, so uh, I'll I'll try to answer everything you raised. Is this the first outbreak of bubonic plague? At this point, I think we're pretty confident that the answer would be no. It is not even the first recorded outbreak of bubonic plague. So and there, I'll answer this in two different ways. So we have genetic material of plague of, I mean, the plague of uh, I mean, what is probably bubonic plague or includes bubonic plague in different areas that are earlier than uh, the, the, the 6th century CE. So we have uh, in Central Asia, for example, we, we found human remains in which plague, uh, plague was identified. So the same bacterium was identified in the bloodstream of someone who probably died from it. And that dates, if I remember correctly, to the second century, maybe it's the third, second or third century. I, I don't actually remember. And we also have the precursors to plague, which may or may not have manifested in plague, may or may not have been the same uh, from the Bronze Age and even the Stone Age, even in Europe, even in Europe. But those uh, genetic or genetic lineages are a bit different. So they may have manifested differently. They may have had different impacts than what we, we, we describe as the, the Justinianic plague. So that's what we have genetically. Now we also have literature and, and there, there, is, there aren't many, but there are accounts of a disease that sounds like bubonic plague. So we hear about buboes and these diseases. Uh, one of these accounts is a bit, a bit earlier. So let's say early sixth, I think it's early sixth century or maybe very late fifth century. Uh, right at the, the, the turn of the, the sixth century. But we also have even earlier evidence from medical literature uh, of a guy called Rufus of Ephesus from the first century. And he tells us that there is a disease with buboes happening in Libya, which he, he, he described, I mean, Libya is, 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 another, is another name for, for North Africa. Mm. He talks about Egypt and talks about Syria. Now, we have not found genetic evidence for plague during those periods. So we cannot be sure that that is plague. Mm. If it was plague, and personally, I think that's reasonable, it, it didn't seem to have any significant impact back then. Definitely not as significant as the Justinianic plague would be later on. But those are that, that's, what, that's the evidence we have for, so to speak, plague before plague or plague before the Justinianic plague. Mm. Okay. And so was the severity of, um, of the Justinian plague, was it on another order of magnitude than what we had seen in the past or, or why, um, why is this notable? And, and, uh, and in your studies and stuff, what has, what has drawn you to this? Okay. So, so that's, that's in a sense, a question that's really at the heart of much of my research over the past few years. Hmm. The question, I mean, the question you're ask, actually asking is what are the demographic impacts or how serious is this disease? And I think you can, the possibilities are, are there's actually a wide range of possibilities here, which makes the question much more difficult, but also much more an, interesting to answer. So on one hand, if you want to take one extreme, you could imagine the Black Death. Right, or the, the, the stereotypical Black Death in which a substantial amount of the population dies. And again, numbers range between, let's say, a third and half the population. So that would be one extreme case. But uh, on the other hand, 
there and some people, including myself, believe that the Black Death was really a, a unique occurrence. So plague has existed before, existed after the Black Death, and it never really had the same kind of impact, the same kind of massive impact as it had during the Black Death and the subsequent second plague pandemic, broadly speaking. And if you want to find evidence for a plague having, so to speak, a lighter touch and not killing as many people, you can look at other times and places. So for example, the, the late 19th or early 20th century, third plague pandemic happens mostly in South and South, Southeast and East Asia, mm. but also reaches worldwide. This is when plague moves from, from Asia, for example, to Australia or South America or certain places in Europe or even the United States. So the Western United States, San Francisco and it, it goes all the way to uh, prairie dog colonies in Colorado. That, that's how play actually got there uh, for whoever uh, has, has been to those areas. And in most of those areas, plague does not have such a significant impact, mm. right? If, if we're thinking about percentages or, or body counts, right? right? So yes, plague exists in San Francisco and it kills, I think, a hundred something people, maybe a few hundred people over a couple of decades. But this is nowhere as near as the Black Death. I mean, the Black Death is, if, if you need to give numbers, and again, all these numbers are estimates once we move to pre-modern times, but the numbers that are usually thrown around are anywhere between 75 and 200 million deaths. So there's a, ma a massive discrepancy here. So the question, or the question I'm, one of the questions I'm interested about the Justinianic plague is, what is the demographic impact of the Justinianic plague? I mean, again, we can't really know but even an order of magnitude would be helpful to know. And some of my research has tried to figure that out through different methodologies or, or means. Mm, interesting. And so, um, I mean, the thing I've always heard with the Black Death is that like a third of the population of Europe died. Um, but obviously the population is lower back then. And the Black Death, I guess, is... Uh, what is the time frame of that? Is that the like late Middle Ages? Um... Yeah. So again, so the Black Death, we can trace it beginning. Uh, we can trace it beginning in, in again Central Asia. Okay. Uh, when it, uh, let's say the consensus, although there have been arguments that uh, that might revise this, but the still consensus, I would say. It identifies its beginning in the 14th century, so the mid 14th century, the 1340s. Okay, that's when it reaches Europe, and it continues until when does it continue? That's also a question. It, some would say that it continues all the way till the 19th century. So, so if you want to take the, the maximum position there, so it'd be the 19th century, and really the Black Death. And this is also a terminology issue. But the Black Death is sometimes spoken of as the first outbreak or series of outbreaks in a larger second plague pandemic. So if we want to be more precise in our terminology, we would call the second plague pandemic this very long series of outbreaks that starts in the 14th century and continues till the 19th century. And the Black Death would be, let's say, the first series of outbreaks, so broadly speaking, mm -hmm. the 1340s or so. And that would be, I would assume, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that the Black Death, these the early outbreaks, it was what was most, uh, uh, had the biggest impact as far as death toll and stuff like that. Yes, and that's also, also what we see with the Justinianic plague. 
So if we compare the recurrence, uh, the, rec the first recurrence of the Justinianic plague, so 541 to let's say 543 or so, we have much, much more evidence, more detailed evidence than we what we have for any of the later recurrences. It's a substantial difference and one that you need to try to explain. And again, there are different views here. Some would say that, that, that this means that the first recurrence is more significant. It kills more people, is more serious, is more disruptive of society. And I think that's, uh, that's, that argument makes sense on one hand. Other people would say, other scholars would say, that the first outbreak has more evidence because it's more unusual. So when people first encounter this, it's a big story. You want to talk about it. You want to write more about it. And afterwards, it just becomes part of your life. And I think you can make, you can see how this argument also makes sense in the context of COVID. Right. So COVID at the beginning, if, if we think about, let's say, February or March 2020, it was a huge story. Everything, everyone was talking all, all, all about it. And I think today, only what, a year and a half, almost two years later, I mean, COVID is there. It's mostly in the background. I mean, we're trying to get back to normal life. So it's not as disruptive as it used to be. I'm not saying that it's not disruptive at all. I'm just saying that relatively speaking, I think more people spoke about COVID back then in early 2020 than speak about today in their everyday lives, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And in, it almost seems like it kind of fades into the back until there's some new breakthrough news or new variant or something I was out last night and people were talking about this latest variant because it's causing shutdowns and travel restrictions and stuff like that. Um, but it, it, it has sort of faded, it seems. Um, one question I have with all of this is looking at, let's just say the, the, um, the Justinian plague and the, the later um, Black Death and the, the second plague, um, this is all before the... Um, before people understood what viruses were? Or, I mean, what did people think was happening during these times? Did they have, um, did people have any kind of practical idea of what was causing this or how to avoid it? Or was it all like superstition? Like, I, I guess kind of what, uh, to the extent we know, what was the, uh, the mentality of people around this, this, this kind of thing? Okay, so we know what our sources, what the written sources we have, what they tell us. And some of them, it, Procopius, the guy who writes the, the most famous account of the Justinianic plague, or Thucydides, who we, who, who we mentioned and who talks about the plague of Athens. So they would say that it's mostly unknown. So doctors, religious people, I mean, they don't really know what's going on. And, and this uncertainty which again, I mean, having read these things before COVID, I kind of felt that I understand what they were talking about at the beginning of COVID when nobody really seemed to know what was going on. So back then, I mean, we do hear about doctors, secular doctors as well, and them not really knowing what to do, how to deal with, the, with these diseases. That being said, that is not, okay, so that, that's one angle. Other other authors, especially later authors after Christianity, would explain this as a manifestation of God's will in some shape or form. So we also hear that. That's also an interpretation that, that is heard of in this, in this time frame. Now, as to what people did, it's a good question. 
it's interesting to, to, to read what our sources want to tell us. I mean, they, they want to tell us certain stories and they don't want to tell us other stories. But if we try to aggregate all the different responses, so some of these responses would be very close to responses that of, of what we did, what we're doing today or what we did at the beginning of COVID at least. So we do hear about people running away, people just like leaving town, going to the mountains, going away to other cities, towns, places, try to get away from plague as quickly as possible. And, and this is something, I think it's pretty common response across history. So I've seen the same response in, in multiple and multiple occasions. And again, COVID as well. So, so that'd be one. In the Justinianic plague, for example, we seem to hear something is similar to self-quarantining. So people locking themselves indoors and not wanting to go out. Now, in that particular case, we also hear about uh, some of the, the side effects, I guess, of that strategy or, or, or that approach. Uh, so one of our sources, a, a guy, actually a, a, a guy called John of Ephesus, he's a religious person, a bishop, would be a bishop later on. And he tells us about, again, the plague in Constantinople. And he tells us, that uh, some people locked themselves within houses and actually died inside. So the, the, governor, the government, the emperor, the, the civic government, basically put together teams of people who would go and knock down doors where they would smell like stench or so and get the corpses out. So we hear, hear about that as well. That's, I mean, we hear about the streets being empty, which again was... Kind of resonated with me at, at the beginning of COVID. Um, in in the case of Thucydides, if we look further back, so Thucydides tells us that plague was actually an opportunity, or many people used it as an opportunity to just do whatever they want and kind of uh, behave in a, a, a negative way from a moral pers moral perspective. Interesting. So like yeah. antisocial behaviors. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, he talks about, yeah. Well, I guess my, um, it, it sounds like, okay, so we have the Justinian plague and we have the later second plague, but like you said, it, it sounded like the, the black death um, in, in your estimation was uniquely had a uniquely devastating impact. So I guess my question is, um, do you have any sense of, of why that's the case? Why maybe the Justinian plague wasn't as severe or didn't have the same impact if it was the same underlying virus? That's yeah, again, another good question. I, I don't think I can answer that. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on the Black Death by mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination, but I do know the Justinianic plague. And the question for me is whether the Justinianic plague behaved as similarly to the Black Death or not. That, as far as I can tell, is probably not the case. But why was the Black Death uniquely different? Uh, I can't say. Interesting. And was Constantinople the, was that kind of the, was that um, the, the major urban center at the heart of the Justinian plague? Yes. Yeah, okay. for sure. So Constantinople had a population of about half a million people, mm. making it the largest city uh, by a fair margin, uh, let's say from uh, the Middle East westward. So throughout Europe, North Africa, the Middle East. So that Constantinople was really a huge city. 
crowded as cities these cities tended to be. And so it was larger. Was it was it larger than than Rome and Alexandria and some of those some of those places? Yeah. So Rome at its height and Alexandria at its height are said to have had about a million a million people each. Mm. But we can't really. I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard to trace or track the population of these cities over time. So, for example, in the sixth century, there are. Uh, there's a lot of fighting in Italy. So Justinian, the guy, the, the emperor, uh, whose name appears in the Justinianic plague. He, I mean, the Justinianic plague is called that way because it happened during his reign. So he's also trying to reconquer as if the Justinianic plague was not enough before, during, before and during the Justinianic plague, he's trying to reconquer the West. So the Western uh, provinces, territories that were part of the old Roman empire, but were lost. So he's trying to reconquer them. There is a lot of fighting in Italy and Rome, the old capital of the empire, kind of becomes depopulated. So Procopius, actually the same guy who I mentioned earlier, the same author, he says that at some point in Rome, because of the fighting, Rome changes hands, I think, like five times between sides, between the, the Ostrogoths, the, the, the group that controls Italy at the time, and the, the Romans or the East Romans or the Byzantines, that they're all like synonymous at this point. And Procopius tells us that only 500 people let, were remained in Rome. Now, I think it's an exaggeration, but it is, I'm pretty sure that Rome was a huge, I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of, there was a lot of urban area, that is to say built area, but it was very sparse, much more, uh, much more sparsely populated at, at this point uh, during the wars. It would be a bit, uh, it would be repopulated later on, but would never reach or would not reach the same number of, the, the same size of population uh, until the, the modern period. Really. Interesting. And so um, I guess I'm, 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 when I'm thinking about this transition from like the, the ancient classical world and sort of these, these, you know, the Roman empire and, and all of this, uh, into the the Middle Ages and the medieval times, I, I think of, and this may be incorrect, but I think of sort of a decline in these large cities and as much urbanization and stuff like that. And um, I mean, is it, it did did uh, did Constantinople continue to be a, a large urban center during medieval times, um, or did it fade as well? Okay, so. To answer that question, before I answer that question, I will say that we need to keep in mind that for cities to be, be large, and when I say large, I mean, say, more than several tens of thousands of people, cities needed to have some kind of way to supply themselves, right? You needed to bring in water and food at the very basic level from other places to your city. And you needed to do that in, in a way that would be uh, sustainable, in a way that, that you could kind of maintain it over time. And this was a major challenge in ancient times, both for Rome and for Constantinople. In both those places, actually, there was something called the Annona, right? The, the, which is, I mean, maybe you can think about it as a, a bread dole or some free food that was being handed out to the population, again, who exactly got it, who did not, that's not entirely clear. Uh, definitely not if, if we look over time. But to, for those cities to maintain that kind of population, population into the uh, hundreds of thousands, 
they had to have that, right? So you needed to know, and as someone who was living in that city, you needed to know that food will come, that someone will take care of the food, will take care of bread, even basic things, right? Bread, oil, some meat sometimes, and, and bring this to your city. Because if those supply lines are cut, the city cannot, I mean, cannot sustain that kind of population. And people just either leave or die or some combination of both of those. Mm. So we see over time. So if we look at things on a broader perspective, we see over time that at some, at certain points, this, these supply lines are cut. So for example, in the early, okay. So if, if you want to bring in more people to your city, you institute these like free, free food essentially. Right. So we see that, for example, in Antioch in the sixth century. Mm. So there, there are like earthquakes happening. The city is destroyed, some raids by, by the Persians who come in. The imperial government wants to repopulate the city. So they just decide to supply it with free food and the city's population grows as a response to that. Now, if, as we see, for example, in the early seventh century, if the empire loses some of the places that supply that food, and here I'm thinking specifically about Egypt, the richest province in the, in the empire, both the early Byzantine and the Roman empire mm. or the Eastern Roman empire. Uh, so once the empire loses Egypt to the Persians in the early seventh century, this, uh, this anona, this institution of basically a fleet of ships taking grain from Egypt every year, taking, taking grain from Egypt and uh, all the way to Constantinople, they kind of lose that, or they lose a sub substantial amount of it. They, they try to bring in more food from other places, for example, some of the shores of the Black Sea, Sicily, but it's much more difficult because those places are not as rich as Egypt. Egypt is really, really rich in, in pre-modern times mm -hmm. because, of, because of the environment there, because you can... Uh, it's much more easier. It's it's much easier to do agriculture there, and there's much more produce per amount per unit of labor. Let's say. So again, once the supply lines are cut, once those areas are not no longer part of the empire after the Persian and later the, the early Muslim conquest, so the population drops. Now this does not mean it stays down. I mean it, it drops substantially in the seventh century. But if we look over time, let's say all the way to till, let's say the 11th century, they do try to reinstitute that. And Constantinople does grow again, mm. maybe not to the half million people, the half million population of half a million that is usually kind of like thrown around as a, as a ballpark figure for Justinian's reign, but to the level of, let's say, 300 or 400,000 people, let's say in the late 10th, early 11th century. So that's another high point there. So, yeah, there, there, are, there are these trends, in a sense. Interesting. Well, and in, in, um, uh, when I introduced you, I mentioned that you, you had also looked at these other disasters beyond plagues and pandemics and things like that. Um, have you felt, I'm, I'm curious what, what other ancient disasters and historical disasters you've, you've kind of done an in-depth uh, look at and whether or not over the last couple of years, you felt like, have you been pulled by the relevance of the pandemic toward just looking at that stuff? Um, or are you still interested in floods and earthquakes and, and other uh, major disasters? 
Yeah, so, so definitely, yes. So, so the pandemic has really drawn me into disease specifically. Hmm. But before the pandemic, before this like side side project, if you're looking at the ancient, ancient diseases, as, as you said earlier on, I mean, I did look at other disasters. I'm still interested in those other disasters. And those could be anything from food shortages, famines, fires, earthquakes we mentioned, floodings, volcanic eruptions. There are a couple of those. Pompeii is like the easiest, the best known one, but there are a few others as well. And I think that one of the things that draw, I mean, there are several things that draw me to these disasters. Not as much, not as much, uh, not as much the uh, the disaster movie kind of like oh let's see what happened in, in, in these massive again fires or earthquakes or whatever, but what I'm more interested in is what these disasters actually tell us about the societies that sustain them or that experience them, and I guess it's another question you can ask about COVID. So these disasters according to some scholars, I, I would agree with this, really tell you much more about how society works, right? So in a sense, it, it's less important how many people died. Mm. It's more important uh, to figure out what happens. How do how does society react? Who reacts? Who, who lives? Who dies? How does society, if at all, rebuild? What does society rebuild? Because rebuilding is not necessarily the same thing, right? So when you rebuild, you actually build things a bit differently. And you see this after earthquakes, for example, or fires. Well, and one question I've been asking historians, because I mean, there's, you know, between the um, pandemic, there's also a a certain amount of political unrest and kind of um, extremism happening in the United States and globally. I'm curious, um, to what extent do you feel like studying these ancient, um, whether they be pandemics or other disasters, helps kind of inform your perspective about what's happening today and how, how reticent or willing are you to, to kind of take lessons and say, uh, you know, and bring them to the modern world when we know there's obviously, you know, it's, it is in some ways it's very similar. We're still human beings, but in other ways it's different. Yeah. Um, so again, it definitely resonates with me, the, the past and the present and both sides. As for lessons, that's something I've been thinking about for several years now. I mean, even before COVID, it, does, does the past teach us something, so to speak? And I think it does, but it but maybe not as maybe not what we think it does, or maybe not what we we tend to think it does. Uh, from my perspective, I think that what what I see in these diseases, let's say, is is how people in very uncertain times, try to make sense of the world around them. And you see the, you see this, you, you, we, we've all seen this during COVID. And I think that realizing that a lot of these reactions were the same. Again, the fear, the uncertainty, uh, the suspicion maybe. Understanding that these are responses that people have, have really used or adopted for 2,500 years it kind of contextualizes 
the events of the present in a sense. So this is one thing that I, I find interesting, if not edifying in history. And also the other point I would raise here is the way we tell stories. And I think that if, if, you, if you take, for example, uh, Procopius, who I mentioned, or John of Ephesus, who have, who I mentioned, both of which, both of whom talk about the outbreak in Constantinople in 542, they tell that story in a very different way than the story, for example, we tell about COVID, right? So for them, the most significant thing by far was what I would describe as the burial problem, the fact that the government or, or that there were corpses in the streets and the government was not able to get rid of those corpses as quickly as it should have. And most of their description actually, or a substantial amount of their description to be more precise, is actually about that. It's just about what did the government do to try to get rid of these corpses? And they just go on through all these different approaches of uh, using existing graves and trying to dig existing graves and trying to pile corpses and these abandoned towers and moving corpses elsewhere and throwing them into the ocean and so on and so on. And this is, it's very vivid actually when you read it, but that is what they were interested in rather than, for example, how did people react? How did individual people react to COVID, which is maybe more of what I would describe, how, it, how, how I would tell the story of COVID today. And again, it just reminds us there are, that there are many different ways to think about, imagine, and talk about these diseases and disasters more broadly. Well, and it's kind of a, a fascinating thing too, because, you know, uh, in the future, people will be looking back at COVID presumably, and they can draw from thousands of doc, you know, of documents and videos and things to form some, you know, to form a sense of how people are reacting. Whereas when we look in the ancient world, um, and, and you would know far more about this than I do, but, you know, oftentimes we're, we're limited to only a handful of, semi-reliable sources or documents and you know it's it, so much weight gets put on you know what one historian or one philosopher wrote and we don't always know was this uh representative of what a lot of people thought at the time or is this just one very specific individual um yeah no for sure that that's it's a major issue in historical research and i think one of the things that COVID has shown if I'm trying to like think back from COVID into the past, is the diversity of experiences related to COVID, right? So in my podcast with the, with my colleague Merle Eisenberg, so we start each episode with with us talking about how COVID is affecting our lives. I'm currently in Jerusalem, Israel. He is currently in Annapolis, Maryland, and I mean even within the same country, I think the United States is a good, a good example here. It, within the same country, within the same state, you would have very, very different experiences of the same event. So some people would be kind of at the heart of things. Other people might not be affected all that much. I can say that, for example, about Israel. So uh, my, my mother lives about an hour away from me and her experience of COVID, she lives in the village type community. Her COVID experience was completely different. I mean, her life was far less affected by COVID than my life living in a big city here was. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I want to uh, definitely give you a chance to talk a little bit more about um, your podcast. I'll remind listeners that I'm talking to Lee Mordecai, who is a professor at Hebrew University of Jerusalem and uh, PhD in history from Princeton University. And uh, he is a co-host of the Infectious Historians podcast, which uh, you just mentioned. I was just looking through some of the different episodes. It looks like you all have covered a lot of uh, a lot of different things and interviewed and talked to a lot of uh, people about uh, infectious diseases would have been some of the highlights of, of the show. Yeah. So I would say that again, the, the amount of different approaches and different, again, interesting for me, things that are related to infectious diseases. So we've covered in, we've kept, we've had episodes on anything from COVID maybe obviously, to diseases in, I mean, actually the genetics. So we brought on scientists, we brought on historians or classicists who worked on the ancient world. We brought in uh, uh, we, we brought in scholars of the present. So people working on contemporary culture, any, anything from zombies to zombie movies to video games. So all these people, I'm trying to bring all these people together within the same podcast. It, it was enlightening to me, at least, having spoken to all of these and understanding, again, how much more complex is disease than my original understanding was. I mean, my original understanding was actually pretty simple and naive, you could actually say. Yeah. Uh, but the more I speak, the more I think about this, the, the more I, it's it, the more interesting it becomes, so to speak. And it sounds like, uh, it sounds like listeners can take a deeper dive into a lot of the subjects we've been talking about, um, today with different episodes of, of your podcast. Uh, is there anywhere else that, uh, before we wrap up, is there anywhere else, uh, we can direct listeners that are interested in your work? Um, you know, they can follow you. Yeah, so I published my work on academia.edu. It's kind of a social network for academics, but it's really, it's less for chatting. It's more for uploading papers, but most of my stuff is there. If, yeah, you could also look for things in Google Scholar, but there you'd probably encounter paywalls. So I would probably say that academia.edu is, is the best place to figure out what I'm doing at, or what, I, what I've published recently. Awesome, awesome. And the infectious, in, in the... Uh... The podcast is called Infectious Historians, and I can't wait to dive into it. I saw a few episodes I really want to listen to um, here in the next few days. So um, uh, thank you, Professor Mordecai, for talking to us. This has been really fascinating. And, uh, you know, um, I'm sure that there will be other disasters in the future and, you know, uh, hopefully not. But uh, maybe we'll, we'll talk again one day uh, in the future. Um, and uh, it's, been, it's been great hearing from you. Great. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's been a pleasure being on your podcast and I've had a great time talking to you. Thanks. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.